Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed the Living Proof podcast, as evidenced by the more than 130,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. The Walmartization of Social Services. This is what today's guests, Drs. Patricia Carlson and Nancy Humphreys, call the financial effect that often occurs for those who leave the welfare roles to work in social service agencies. Poverty wages, hours short of full-time, and loss of health insurance coverage often accompany this transition. When that transition is from welfare to work at agencies from which they formerly received services, ethical issues arise. Dr. Patricia Carlson is a senior research associate with the NEE Casey Foundation. Her areas of specialization include public and private child welfare and family services, the intersection of poverty and child abuse and neglect, and moving from welfare to employment. Dr. Nancy Humphreys is a professor of policy practice and director of the Nancy A. Humphreys Institute for Political Social Work at the University of Connecticut. She is a former dean of the School of Social Work and past president of the National Association of Social Workers. Her areas of specialization include public child welfare and family services, women's issues, social work education, and social work in Armenia. Doctors Carlson and Humphreys discuss their research on the phenomenon of moving from welfare to work in social service agencies, its impact on workers and clients, and the ethical implications that follow. Charles Sims, clinical associate professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Drs. Carlson and Humphreys by telephone. Good afternoon. This is Charles Sims, and I'm with Drs. Patricia Carlson and Nancy Humphreys. Hello, doctors. How are you today? Fine, and you? Fine, fine. I teach the Interventions 1 class here at the school, and we spend time talking about ethics. And one of the things that I often talk to with the students about is the fact that it's in school that we have the opportunities to talk about ethical issues or ethical considerations. But once we move into professional practice, we often don't get the opportunity to have those brave ethical discussions that we had while we were in class. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your work and about your study concerning this population. I conducted a mixed methods study of women who left welfare for employment. Uh, There was a study of TANF leavers. And one of the unanticipated findings of this study 
was that a number of these women who had left welfare for employment in Connecticut were being employed with their either within the same agency or within another social service agency in the community. That's a little bit of the background, but I'll tell you a little bit about the study. As I said, it was a mixed method study. The qualitative piece was in-depth interviews with 12 Connecticut women who had left TNF between 1999 and 2005. And we collected the data through a brief questionnaire and then an in-depth interview. And so as through that process, um, which I said was part of a larger study, we found that uh, many of these women were being employed with their former agencies. And so we went back and took a look at a nationally representative data set, uh, the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, which is a nationally representative longitudinal study of, of all types of data related to income and employment, and found that trend was also followed in the national study. And so you know, we found out that many women who left welfare for employment were in fact being employed in the social service industry. And so we explored a number of themes that that were related to the findings that we found in Connecticut. So, for instance, in the Connecticut study, two-thirds of the women who had left welfare were being employed in their former agencies. We didn't find as many in the national study, but we found a really substantial percentage. We found 20% of the national study. So those were women who had left welfare for employment during between 1999 and 2005 were working in the social service sector. So a large number, a very large number of women. And then what we found that was interesting in terms of some of the important trends were that half of the Connecticut sample of the women who were working in social service agencies were still living in poverty, even with those jobs. And nationally, 67% of those women were making an income below the poverty threshold. We also found that in the Connecticut sample that 60% of those TANF leavers were receiving state-subsidized health care and 14% had no coverage, and these were women who were working in social service agencies. Nationally, 25% were receiving state-subsidized health care and 30% had no health insurance whatsoever or reported no health insurance whatsoever. Both the national and the Connecticut data indicated that these women were working at hours that were short of full-time and did not receive uh, benefits. And so this was an issue which we call the Walmartization of social services. And this mirrors the manner in which Walmart's been widely criticized for treating its low-wage workers. So those were some of the, the, the key findings from both of the studies. And then further, with the Connecticut sample, those were in-depth interviews and a number of themes regarding other ethical dilemmas that, that emerged from hiring former clients. As I listen to you, it sounds like there were two major areas of concern that I hear. One of those is the ethical implications of actually hiring what were former of that agency services, as well as what happens with them afterwards, that this notion or this idea that how they're compensated for their work. So it sounds like they found two major things there. I was wondering if we could address them both. As I read more, I got really very interested in this because I know a number of programs are now looking at bringing individuals who were previous recipients into their agencies as, as employees or as peer representative, peer paraprofessionals. So I'm wondering if we could talk about the ethical issues and then talk a little bit about the actual compensation kind of issues that you've highlighted earlier. 
Sure. When you're thinking about the ethical issues, what kinds of things did you find that you discovered were most salient in the work that uh, you did? There essentially are two concerns. One is what is called conflict of interest, and the other is called dual relationships. And within the NISW Code of Ethics, the discussion of dual relationships appears in the same section as the issue of conflict of interest. So I think one of the first questions is what are the same and what are different between something called conflicts of interest and something called dual relationships. And issue with conflict of interest is uh, that it is a broader construct than the notion of dual relationships. Um, it can be a conflict of interest can be impersonal. It does not necessarily require a relationship or even knowing the uh, other party or even uh, the relationship the, the potential conflict with the relationship with the client. In contrast to what's called a dual relationship, which is much more focused and requires some kind of face-to-face -face contact or some kind of face-to-face -face activity. A conflict of interest involves a social worker's obligation to treat their client as the primary focus of concern. And there is a conflict any time a social worker would have an interest in something else that would be affected by their relationship with the client. So, for example, if um, a, uh, a social worker asks a client uh, to uh, uh, provide them with some assistance, they hired them to do something, they have a, a broken computer and the, client happen they, the social worker knows that the client is very good with computers and so asks the client if the client would, uh, would take a look at their computer and figure out what's wrong with it and uh, perhaps even go so far as to ask the client to repair the computer. That is considered a conflict of interest because it's not known whether or not the client would be making a free choice to engage in that activity. And even if the client said, oh, I'd be happy to do that, I would like to do that for you, there is always an implicit concern because many, many clients, in fact, many argue that all clients have a built-in tendency to want to please their worker. And so their decision to, to do something for the worker might not necessarily be really fully voluntary or a complete exercise of free will since clients want to please workers. Within the concept of conflict of interest, there is something called dual relationships. And the Code of Ethics speaks to the fact that uh, code, that to dual relationships almost always, in fact, others would argue always, have negative consequences for clients because there is always the potential of some kind of negative repercussion of having a, a relationship with the client in the helping context and then a, also a relationship in another context. For example, if you have a client and a member of your family marries into the same family, uh, the, or the family, pardon me, of your client, um, at family gatherings, you are going to have a social worker who knows a great deal about a family member and a client who is always vulnerable to the fact that the social worker might slip and say something that had been shared with the social worker in confidence. So a dual relationship is when the social worker has a second role or relationship with a client or most importantly with a former client. 
the NASW Code of Ethics requirement that one manage and prevent dual relationships also includes former clients. Because again, there is a power differential in the relationship itself, and that a power relationship endures even after the, the professional relationship has been terminated because the social worker always knows things about the client that the client would not necessarily have shared with others. The issue in terms of, of having TANF leavers working in agencies with their, the worker with whom they worked when they were on TANF presents all kinds of dual relationships and potential conflict of interest concerns. I see. Do you have thoughts about other kinds of individuals who might be working in that agency who might, I'm thinking of individuals who people, maybe they're not necessarily employees, but individuals who are are held up as role models or stars or success stories, because I'm seeing more and more of that kind of utilization also. Does that same thinking or that, that same concept transfer to those or move to those would that be applicable in those kinds of settings or situations, do you Under think? Under certain circumstances, it can. And what we're talking about in this, in this regard are instances in which some of our values and some of our hopes are, work at cross-purposes. And let me uh, give you a for instance. I think that uh, it's very useful to have clients who are served by social service agencies on the boards of agencies. Now, having said that, Board members have all kinds of access to all kinds of information about social workers in the agency that clients would never have access to. So if one is going to accomplish the good of adding clients to decision-making authority, one is going to have to offset that good by paying attention to the fact that it's very possible that things about a particular worker will be revealed to clients, um, even though that is a former relationship, obviously, and one has to think about how to sort that out. The other thing is that with ethics, they are not cut and dry. There's not a right answer under all circumstances. One has to figure out what are the implications of these arrangements and how does one protect everyone who is in, who's involved and could potentially be hurt by this. The other issue that you that you raised, Charles, is you know the notion of people who are held up as role models or people who are stars, and uh, Dr. Carlson has some examples of people making note of just that phenomenon in her study, which was part of what brought our attention to this as well. And there are real pitfalls and uh, to that kind of uh, process because what if you stumble? What if what if something happens? What if you um, uh, are not able to be a star. And when this first emerged, I remembered as a very young social worker um, many, many, many years ago, I worked in adoption. It was my second year field placement. And at that time, the, the myth of the chosen child was how adoptive parents were told to explain to kids that they were adopted, that they were chosen. And uh, lots of studies in the mid-60s came to show that chosen children were insecure children because they were very afraid of what would happen if the parents chose differently now when the kid misbehaved. 
So putting people in these special categories has real downsides to it. It has good sides, too, because people feel very good to have been chosen or to be a star, but they also have a lot of psychological costs of what happens if they lose that. And I don't know, you may want to, Dr. Carlson may want to share one of those stories. I was just getting ready to ask her if she'd like to weigh in. Let me just read you a brief quotation and then talk a little bit about it. This was from one of the interviews. My case manager was constantly telling me that you are an amazing real-life example, and I'm sitting right next to her now. We're not at the same program, but we're working together, and she refers to me, her clients, all the time so I can find jobs from them. And she tells me all the time, I can't believe where you're sitting. And every time she thinks about it, she tells me how proud she is of me. So a real direct example of that being, you know, being elevated to a star. And then, um, and, and we saw these kinds of, this is one example of a theme that, that came up over and over again. And then talking about the negatives of that, um, Dr. Humphreys referred to some of them, but also some of the negatives comes in the way that some of these stars then treat other clients. In some of the cases where some of these the people that were that were elevated were getting all kinds of special treatment, getting driven to work by their caseworkers, helped in, in ways that, that others. And so then another thing that emerged was that their clients are having unrealistic expectations. I was able to get here. Why can't you? Sometimes not necessarily seeing some of the special treatment they may have received for, for whatever reason. I'd like to take this opportunity to shift a little bit because you, you kind of answered my second question, and that was what would be the impact on other clients of people who have been elevated to this new role of worker and how that might impact them. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, there's one thing There's one thing we haven't talked about at all, and that is the issue of uh, privacy and, co- and confidentiality. Because if you elevate one client who is part of a group of clients, um, then uh, how do you protect the privacy rights of the other clients who have not been elevated? And I think one of the reasons that we became concerned about this and one of the things that really needs to be the, the focus of, uh, of these uh, kinds of discussions and considerations is uh, what are you doing in order to protect the rights of everybody who is involved? So that what are these agencies doing to ensure that a client, which we came to call a client knee worker, that is a, a client who is now a worker, does not have inappropriate access to the private information of other clients with whom they used to share a peer relationship and now they don't anymore because that the one client is now working for the organization from which other clients continue to receive services. There are ways to protect people such as making sure certain that all clients with whom your client your former client who is now your worker would have had any contact making sure that they never have access to their files or never have access to their information but it requires a very systematic and conscious effort to protect the rights of everyone who is a party to um, uh, to these interactions. And what we have found, and I think others have found as well, is that there tends to be 
a kind of a lackadaisical attitude about this that people don't don't necessarily understand um, the nuance or the difficulties that these kinds of situations propose, and so there is no real plan to address these issues and to protect the rights of others, most especially the rights of other clients who would not want their former client colleague or client peer to have access to their information. As I hear you talking, um, explaining the way to manage this, I find myself thinking of a, the term risk management as a term I use sometimes when I'm talking in class. When we're in class, we're talking about the thinking about managing risk in situation, in ethical situations. This feels like the, very much the same kind of thinking. It is, and I think the people in the field who write about these kinds of issues, particularly Frederick Reamer, um, uh, speak about assertive risk management as being the only thing that is a possible way to cope with these kinds of situations. And, you know, ideally, one avoids dual relationships, period. But in all instances, that isn't always possible. And in these instances where people, TANF leavers, have been hired by the agencies that they receive services from, there are obviously some great advantages to them being hired. Uh, they have a job. These clients reported to Dr. Carlson that they enjoyed their work. They, um, but there are also downsides that people were generally just ignoring. And the antithesis of assertive risk management is ignoring the issue. Um, and so what has to happen is people have to pay attention to this and put in place processes that protect the rights of everybody. And generally speaking, that's not happening. Dr. Humphreys and I, and when we presented this work to other groups of social workers, and we definitely wanted to assert that some of these jobs are very good jobs and, and do provide some things that, that other types of jobs that some of the former welfare recipients, definitely some things that they weren't, wouldn't be getting in other employment sectors. But the issues are serious, and they, just, they can't be ignored. I see. I'd like to take this time to, to kind of shift gears a little bit and, and talk about that second issue that I was mentioning earlier and, and the idea of there seems to be, at least your research seems to show, that you had some concerns concerning compensation or, or pay. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. Uh, but you had a term that you thought might be one to help us think about how individuals who are coming to this kind of work, the differentials in compensation. Dr. Carlson. Well, I think the word you referred to is the Walmartizing of social services, which was a term that Dr. Humphreys coined. I think brilliantly summed up some of what we saw was happening because they said while these jobs were good jobs in many ways, what we found was that a large percentage were not receiving a wage that was that would raise their families above the poverty threshold and also did not provide health care. And so these jobs were pretty close to full-time jobs, but yet still did not provide health care. And in fact, the large percentage were receiving um, state-subsidized health care or some didn't have health care. And so, again, this is an area where the retailer, Walmart, has been criticized in that they do this with their low-wage workers. And it was very striking to us that this was happening in social service agencies also, and because these findings were of both nationally and 
the Connecticut sample were all women who were working in, in the social service sector. So we're seeing that mirrored, which was a very surprising finding. I think I would add to that, Charles, that this data was collected about three years ago, and Walmart has made a significant shift in the last 18 months around supporting public health care, for example, and national health care, in part because there was a, was a national effort to expose the fact that the lack of coverage for health care for Walmart employees which was substantially less than comparable organizations such as Target or Sears or Kmart. Um, I mean, there was data nationally. I don't happen to have that at my fingertips, but it would be easy to obtain, that Walmart was instead shifting the burden of the health care costs from their payroll to the public programs, the Husky program or the, the Children's Health Initiative, and in state after state, there was data produced as to the percentage of Walmart employees whose health care for their children was coming from uh, the Medicaid program. So Walmart undertook a rather effective and assertive strategy of, of having television ads, people talking about how happy they are to work for Walmart and how they, now, and how they have health insurance and so forth. But it was a phenomenon that uh, came to be called, you know, the people talked about Walmart, the, you know, the Walmartizing of, and so it seemed that we found the same pattern in these agencies. And another thing to pay, take uh, account of is uh, that I think that it's probably worse now because these agencies are providing welfare-to-work services through contracts with public agencies that administer uh, the TANF program, and they are all being cut and slashed because of the crisis of federal and state financing. So that my guess is that is that there are fewer people getting health insurance today in these contract agencies as employees than there were even perhaps at the time the data for this study was um, was collected. Very interesting. I'm wondering, you both have found some very interesting findings as a result of your study. I'm wondering, what do we do now? How do we use this or how do we move this forward into the practice arena for agencies who may find themselves, after hearing this podcast, maybe rethinking their position or rethinking how they're going to move forward with individuals who are employed by their agency or for agencies who might be thinking that as a part of the moving forward with TANF that they might want to be involved in bringing individuals who were formerly recipients of services into their agencies to become employees. You say that in your classes you discuss risk management around these kinds of issues. There is no magic bullet for any of this. There is no magic solution to any of this. I think uh, people have to approach these issues as and these situations as being instances in which uh, harm can occur unless one consciously, pragmatically um, thinks through how can you protect the interests of everybody. I don't think either of us, and we're in the process of preparing a paper at the moment, neither of us want to advance the notion that this should not happen. That's not the issue at all. But rather, it should happen with a very conscious plan in place. 
and a plan that respects the rights and the situation of every person in the process. You know, one of the things we've heard from people as we presented this is, well, you're talking about professional social work ethics. Many of these uh, agencies are not staffed by uh, social workers, at, the, at least at the front line, and that's generally true. Many of these Case managers are not educated social workers. On the other hand, if there is any, or there, if there are any social workers employed in that organization, ignorance is not a defense for unethical behavior. And I think that we could collectively come out, come up with some very creative strategies for addressing all of these issues. I think we're quite capable of doing that, but we'll only do it if we pay attention, if we kind of uh, expose this as an issue and then address it as an issue. Dr. Carlton has looked at um, uh, some instances in terms of the substance abuse field, and we're trying to sort out there, while much of it is self-help and not professional help, what are the things that have been done there that work and protect the interests of all parties? But I think we can figure those things out, but it mean, the first step is to make these things uh, evident and clear and conscious and then ask people to address them as interesting ethical dilemmas where everyone will have some contribution to make as to the appropriate remedy. You know, being ethical is not following a set of rules. It's implementing a process that says we are attending to the various ethical issues that are involved in this situation. It's called ethical decision making and it's um, it's not necessarily practiced so much in the world as it should be. The substance abuse field is starting to, as it's becoming more and more professionalized, it's also finding itself rubbing up against some of the very concerns both of you are, are talking about at this point in time. So I think your work will be very helpful moving forward. Dr. Carlson, do you have any comments that you would like to make regarding the other face of this coin, the compensation face? Just echoing what Dr. Humphrey said about understanding that this is a dual relationship and understanding what that means is well defined in the code of ethics. And so the compensation piece speaks to making sure that people are paid a fair living wage. I mean, I think that's something, it, it's a difficult in this economy, but it's something we certainly need to be thinking about. Certainly, social workers who are in a management position needing to make sure that, you know, that any person coming through the door being hired would be paid a fair wage and that certainly someone that wasn't that was in a position that had to take a job since the current welfare program really mandates work that 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 that's not being exploited because we would know a lot more if, if this person was a former client, we would know a lot more about their history. So in terms of the of compensation is it's it's really that that it, it also ties into the into the ethical piece. And that um compensation and benefits are made available if it's a full time job that's the way that the job be given to the person. Agencies struggle with, with this note of cost in, in trying to garner contracts. And I think sometimes we have to just say we have a, an obligation, a social contract with our employees about how we're going to compensate them for their work. And we think that providing these other higher salaries or whether that be higher salaries or health insurance or whatever that is, we think that that's important because it makes a statement in doing that. Because also I found instances where these women that were working were then not able to, they felt unable to seek assistance at food pantries or soup kitchens. They needed because they were working and they said they couldn't go back. It was hard to admit. And so if we are, social service agencies are hiring 
uh, people and not paying them a living wage, they may also be inadvertently blocking them from getting other services which they may need. I'd like to bring this to a close, but I do have one question before I let you both go. I know you talked to the women who were previous recipients. I was wondering if you had the opportunity or if there was any thought about talking to the professionals or to the workers who are actually in the agencies about the impact of bringing former recipients into the into the agency and as peers almost? We didn't in this study, and of course, you know, dissertations are defined studies, and if that would be an interesting issue. I do know that this is not uh, the first time uh, that these kinds of issues have been tried. They were tried in the 60s, and there was a literature in the 60s that looked at some of the impact of hiring former clients in social service organizations, and the experiences were fairly mixed. There were people who were very happy and, and who thought it added to the agency. There were also instances in which, as uh, Dr. Carlson says, uh, the uh, attitudes of the uh, clients became very harsh in terms of other clients and I did this, why can't you, and and so forth. So I think it is a kind of mixed uh, picture. I think if we were to collect the success stories, if we were to undertake to do that, and that's certainly something at some point we might consider doing, that would be very interesting because it would give people some kind of a menu of things that they can think about and maybe even do to enhance the value of having a former clients as part of your inside the agency family uh, because they, they can bring a very important perspective that is often neglected and is needed. But to have the perspective and then have the rights of the clients compromised is obviously a very problematic trade-off. Yes, I would agree. Thank you. As we close, I was wondering if either or both of you have any parting comments for uh, our listening audience. Well, I think whatever perspective someone is listening from, I think that being very conscious of these subtleties of these kinds of situations and of the importance of treating them as issues that need to be thought through rather than just trying to ignore the problems that are attendant to these kinds of arrangements. And I agree with that. As we mentioned earlier, the the literature on this doesn't um, sit so much in social work literature. It sits in substance abuse. So that this is not something I think that when I talk to people about this, it's not something that they think about um, in this way. And so I think that the most important thing is is to understand, again, that it's a dual relationship and then to attend to those very nuanced issues um, in dealing uh, with this. Well, thank you. I appreciate you being with us on this podcast. And I'd like to thank Drs. Uh, Nancy Humphreys and Patricia Carlson for their insights and thoughts onto an issue that is certainly going to be in the mindset as we move forward with bringing individuals into practice who were former recipients. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Charles. You've been listening to Drs. Patricia Carlson and Nancy Humphreys discuss the impact of moving from welfare to work at social service agencies and the ethical implications that arise. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.
ub.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.